morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 7. And the last time we laid the foundation for faith. So if you weren't here last Sunday, please get it for free on the internet. It's really about getting the understanding. We're going to divide this chapter into four sermons. It is such an explosive, powerful 40-verse uh, chapter that I'm not going to just run through it. Uh, today we're going to be in verses 7 through 21. And, you know, we're going to continue in our profiles in faith. And we're going to look at men and women, just like you and I, frail, sinful, um, problems, uh, difficulties, issues, and we're going to see how God used them. And that's really the blessing in this. So I'm going to really break it up into four segments as we go through each person in this profile of faith. And the first segment is going to be, what does the scripture say about them? Where can I find this, Pastor Joe? I'm not really familiar with the Bible. So I'll give you your scripture reference. And then we're going to look at their faith. We're going to look at why they're in the heroes of faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're also going to look at their failures. Now, there's no, way, there's no nice way for me to say this, but looking at their failures is going to give us encouragement. Because we're going to see, especially for those of us that maybe look in the mirror and we, maybe we've grown up, maybe we've been in abusive relationships and we've been told that we're no good, that we're nothing. We'll never amount to anything. Well, you know what? Some of these people were that God used. Uh, and when we look in the mirror, it doesn't matter what we see. What matters is what God sees inside of us. I knew what I did before I was a Christian. I've shared a lot of it from the pulpit, and I don't mind saying it if it helps somebody here to realize that God can use you no matter what you did, no matter what you were involved with, no matter what other people say about you. And God likes to use people like that. It's the prideful ones that he has a difficulty with because he can't get past that shell because he's given them that free will. It's the ones that look and see, I have, I have failures. I've failed in life. But God can still use me? And the answer is yes. So I want you to be encouraged by that. I'm loving studying this. I mean, I'm just excited about it. And, you know, I want to kind of savor it and, and you know, masticate on it and, and just uh, assimilate it into my spiritual soul because it's just so much fun to study and it's fun to teach. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So the last point to this is I want you to identify I want you to look at these profiles in faith, and I want you to say, well, gee, there's a similar situation. Wow, you know, and, and God used that person? So the last out of the four is to identify with these real people who lived uh, in the scripture, okay? You're a real person too, right? God can do great things with you as well. Now, we left off in verse 6 last Sunday with the first two profiles. The first one was Abel, faith and worship. And the second one was Enoch, faith in living. And now we're going to jump in to verse 7. By faith, Noah was being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So Noah, we find him in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Here's a guy who believed in something because God told him that never happened any, uh, before. Uh, Noah, Noah, you got to build an ark and there's going to be a flood. What, wait a minute, what's a flood? You know, according to the scripture, according to Genesis, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more as well, the science of Genesis, there were underground springs that, that would go up almost like geysers, I suppose, and they would water the vegetation. 
So there was no flood. There probably was no rain either. And we can talk about the water canopy and such. This is going to be a lot of fun. So here's a guy. God tells him something. And to make matters worse, society never heard of this either. So when he goes to prepare this boat and he's hammering the gopher wood and he's pitching, you know, putting the pitch on the bottom and the neighbors are probably saying, what, you've lost your mind. He probably was the laughing stock. They probably, when they had nothing to do on a Friday night, would drive by Noah's, or drive. Let me back up for a minute. <laughs> they would caravan past Noah's house and he would be the, you know, the object of the neighborhood. Look at this guy, he's building a huge boat. What's a flood? So it's pretty exciting to look at. And probably in his heart of hearts, you know, he trusted God. But he probably thought, you know, I, I kind of wish God would ask me to do something a little bit less dramatic. But the question is, what if God told you to do something that was outlandish today? Right? Some would probably rather drown than suffer ostracization of, of the society. So Noah is our third profile in faith. He is faith in preparing. And I might add, preparing something colossal. Do you realize that God had faith in Noah? <gasps> Pastor Joe, we're going to tell Pastor Lloyd, that's blasphemy. That is, how do you say that? But think about what faith is. It's trust, confidence, reliance on. He had confidence in Noah. He had confidence in this man, this one man, and his family. So God had faith in Noah. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, God wants us to be successful? God doesn't call us. God doesn't speak to us. God doesn't show us things in Scripture so that we can fail at it. He knows what he can do through our lives. So God, in a sense, had faith in Noah. He knew he could do it. I'm sure Noah had his moments. And God said, don't worry, son. I'm with you. You're going to do it. You're going to see it. You wait to see what happens. It's very exciting. So starting with Noah now, because we looked at... Way back in Genesis, Abel and Enoch. Now we're going to start to get into the portion of Scripture where people made their mistakes. And Noah was one of them. And that's reassuring. In Genesis 9, there was a situation where Noah, after he got off the boat, planted a vineyard. I guess he let the grapes ferment too much and he got really drunk. And he was in his tent naked and his son walked in on him. And it, it created this whole big problem. And Noah woke up afterwards, he was angry with one of his sons, and there was problems there. We know that Noah's descendants, going down to Genesis 10 and 11, uh, all got together and built the Tower of Babel, which was a horrible thing, trying to get God, or trying to get to heaven, circumventing God in a relationship with him. That was problematic. So there were issues with Noah, and there's going to be issues with us as well, rest assured. You know, the smart person looks in the mirror and realizes, I'm flawed. It's the deceived person who looks in the mirror and thinks that they're just so wonderful, right? Society needs me. No, I don't think so. You see, we all want God to speak to us, but what about when God asks us to do something difficult? What about that? What about when God asks us to forgive in a situation where everyone else is looking for blood? And God says, no, I want you to forgive. What about when God asks us to walk away from a person when everybody else is still hanging around with them and what they're doing is evil and they're popular? That takes a lot of courage too. What about when we have some type of meltdown, emotional, financial, what have you, and God says, focus, this time I want you to rely on me. 
Don't quick to pick up the phone and talk to other people. I want you to rely on me. I know it's big, but I can see you through this. So there's going to be times, listen, no is no better than we are. And we can't just put our fingers in our ear and say, no, I'm not listening. You don't understand, God, I was looking for something glamorous. You know, I was looking for something that is, um, that they made a movie, uh, you know, on AMC Classics. I want something big and glamorous and easy. And God says, no, I have something very difficult, but very needed. So the question is, will we follow him? Will we do what he's called us to do? Or will we shirk from that? A few points before we move into the next profile. The first point, the science of the antediluvian and the post-diluvian period. The flood was such an amazing uh, part of our history, human history, that in the dictionary, you can find antediluvian and post-diluvian. Yes, even in the secular dictionaries. Means that at some one point, everybody believed that this was the case. You look at the Gilgamesh record, you look at peoples from across the world, and they all have a story of a flood, and they, they may not have languages to be able to communicate with each other. Science, the scientists will say, well, it takes a, a, a little bit of water and a whole lot of years. And the Bible says, well, it takes a whole lot of water and, if, and, and very little time. Same universal solvent, water, but we look at it from a different... We both agree on how it happened, but we have little nuances in what we believe. Now, the most likely, if you look at the science of today, you ever hear the, the term Pangea? where the, the continents were closer together, and, and if you kind of put them together, they look like they fit like a puzzle. Um, it's believed that there was more land on the planet before the flood, or what we would say is before the flood, and we believe in that as well. We also know that the Japhethites, or the Far Eastern peoples, went across the Bering Strait from the Asia-Russia area into Alaska, the North American area. As a matter of fact, when they took DNA, when DNA was very popular, they took DNA of Native Americans and they found that they're related to people on the other side of the world. Beringia was a term that the scientists will use to speak about how the Bering Strait had more land, it was wider, and people could easily cross back and forth. What's amazing is the Book of Mormon says that the Native Americans were of a Jewish heritage. But anthropology proves that wrong. That book is not inspired by God. But the Bible has always been proven right. The Bible has always spoken about these situations. So we look at the lifespan differences uh, before the flood. Huge change in lifespan when the uh, average people lived in 900 and some odd years, even after the, the fall into sin. And then if you, if you chart the lifespan differences as we get past the flood... Noah's family, right? And then after that, it was shortened to roughly 120 years. And we, we, we understand that now, right? But if you look at the, the waters that the Bible speaks about in the Scripture, when the floods came, God was very specific. He didn't have to be. He said the great fountains of the deep. And we know that even in the oceans, there's currents that are underneath and there's, there's flows of water that come out from the ocean floor. We know that underneath the, the ground that we live in, that we see as earth, that there's, you know, I have a well at my house. You put a pipe down deep enough, you'll find water. There's different channels of water underground. Well, God spoke about the great fountains of the deep that opened up and, and, maybe, and came to the top and started flooding the earth. He also spoke about the waters from above, 
Well, I don't care. I've been, I've been under many great rainstorms, and they haven't been able to fill the earth so much that it goes up to the top of Mount Ararat and then beyond. But what do we know? We know that in Genesis, it tells us that there was waters above the firmament and below the firmament. And we can understand, especially finding woolly mammoths with long, um, light hair, not heavy hair, the lighter hair, the more frizzy hair was to protect them from the sun, that the woolly mammoths probably lived in a warmer climate. When they find the woolly mammoth and they cut it up in his stomach, they find fresh vegetation. He was flash frozen. Flash frozen by the flood because of the changes in the environment and the, the water, the canopy that came up and that, that fell down to the earth. And now the cosmic rays affect us differently. It affects our DNA. I go to my, a dermatologist every so often because I, I like being out in the sun and he was telling me about all the different thousands of genetic changes that go uh, change just in your skin in your lifetime, thousands of them, tens of thousands, they've charted it. Impressive. However, that wasn't the case according to the biblical record because that water vapor and, and would, it would be able to help to shelter or, or stop some of those UV rays and cosmic radiation and it would have the effect of warming the whole earth uniformly as in a greenhouse effect. Did you ever realize there was so much science in the scripture? I think for, for Christians it's a cop-out to cower under what the world says. Well, you know, maybe God made evolution. Well, the Bible says that, that there was no death. And nobody died until there was sin. So how could that be? It doesn't make any sense. Because you know what? If we hold firm long enough and dig our cleats in, science will always catch up to the scripture. Always. Bar none. So you, we, we threw a lot of things in here. We spoke about anthropology. We spoke about, you know, it's very exciting. I get very excited when I talk about this stuff. And I'm trying to cram in years of study into five minutes in that dissertation, but there's really more to it. So you see the science of the Bible, the science of the, of the pre-Diluvian and post-Diluvian period and why God allowed that to happen. The second point we see is in Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the days of Noah prior to judgment, right? or excuse me, in, in our future judgment, um, he speaks about there's going to be a judgment that was like the days of Noah, where everybody was married and given in marriage, they were working, and then bam, the judgment came. However, he always would save the righteous out of judgment. How, do you, how were you righteous? Under the blood of Jesus, under the Passover, the blood of the Passover, that's Jesus. Right? And when we look at the rapture, we see a lot of these types of those who are in, in his righteousness, who he's made righteous, uh, fall and they, they pass under that judgment. You can look at Egypt, you can look at Jericho, you can look at the flood, you can look at Sodom, Gomorrah. God has never, never condemned the righteous with the evil. He always separates them. So that's pretty exciting. So, you know, these, these denominations who say that Genesis was just an allegory, we, we covered, what, seven, eight minutes of this stuff? And there's more to it because they're cowering to what the world is saying. And then they look foolish when the world science, science always changes. Things that scientists thought 50 years ago, we, we would laugh at today. We're ridiculous. So there's a, there's a lot more to that as well. So verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city 
which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, the age of childbearing, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. I'm going to put these two together, Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife couple. They are our fourth profile in faith, faith in obeying. Now, there was a lot for them to obey. They had a lot of instructions. It had to do with their progeny, their children, posthumous uh, promises after their death, and also their direction. Let me just read to you uh, Genesis 12, some of the instructions that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a lot to this. There's a lot about the Messiah all the way back in Genesis. But I want to focus on Abraham's life. Think about this. Again, take yourself, put yourself in his position. He was no better than you or I. He was just a man, but he trusted God. And if he didn't trust God, he wouldn't be able to do any of these things. He left his relatives, his culture, his geography, his friends to show you where? Move next door to uh, South River? No. Move 500 miles away where all these things are different to his inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a homebody. I like being home. If I had a long day, I just like to go home, take my shoes off, play with the dogs, and relax. And this would be hard for me. And I suspect, because it was such a, a tall order, it would be hard for you as well. It's not every day you, you, you get to, to do something like this. So first, the first thing we see is that Abraham and Sarah had to have faith in God for direction in life. Now, I could picture him trying to sell it to his wife. Maybe she completely trusted him in, in everything. You know, but I could just picture the conversation. It might have been a shock at first. Honey, we're moving. Where are we going? 500 miles away. Where? I don't know. God's going to let us know when we get there. Baby, I'm nesting. You know, I just got new furniture. I, I, got a, you know, I, I met some really nice friends. I got a job. We got to leave, hon. Oh, man, that's heavy. That's big. That was a big thing that, that he asked of them. The second point that we see is that in verse 10, it says that they were waiting for a heavenly city. So the second faith was faith in God's permanence. He knew that they were only pilgrims on this earth. Imagine living a life as a Bedouin or as a nomad. And, and I, there's people like today that do that in the Middle East. That's got to be a hard life. They've got to put up their tents, literally drive them into the ground. They have to kill for their food, grow things. That is not an easy life to live. But Abraham knew that he was a pilgrim on this earth. He knew that he was destined to, for the city of God, this permanence that God was eventually going to provide for him. It's amazing the faith that he had in God. And I suspect probably in Western culture we're so distracted by so many things, especially technology, that we probably don't listen to God as much as we should. Because God will speak to us. He'll guide us. He'll move us. He'll confirm things. 
But we've got to be open to it. Not, you know, there's just so much. You know, the texts and the, you can get anything on these phones now. I still have a, a clamshell dinosaur phone. The guys at work make fun of me. But, uh, you know, I'm just, I don't like change. <laughs> and, and it's funny because I know when I go to the store, the guy's going to be like, you still have that thing? But technology, it's always, we're always being bombarded with information, bombarded. We live in the age of information. You can win elections now based on information. You just get to know the habits of the people, right? They say now that even if you hit like on Facebook, that it's recorded somewhere, somewhere, you know, somewhere, big computers and stuff. And they do. They follow people's habits. We're, we're predictable little sheep sometimes. But Abraham knew he was a pilgrim. And as believers, as believers, we need to get that too. In Western Christianity, we have it reversed. We get so attached because life is good here in America. Life is good. We live better than three quarters of the earth's population. And we get attached. We, we get tethered to this world. That's why the thought of the rapture, there's whole denominations that reject what the Bible says about that because they don't want the Lord to come back. They're having it too good here. And I think that hurts us as Christians. I really do. The third point was that Sarah had a child as an elderly woman, way past child-rearing age. So the third faith that they had is the faith in God to open Sarah's womb. And fourth is that Abraham and Sarah believed and trusted God to make a great nation out of them. And that was faith beyond their years. That was faith that only was going to come to pass after their death. But I will say this, that Abraham and Sarah, and, you know, I study the scripture, and sometimes I close the book because I'm having a brain lock, and, you know, I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord to show me something. You know, how, well, how can I really characterize Abraham and Sarah? And then I'll open it up again, and I'll ask the Lord, you know, show me, show me, show me. And, and I just thought about something. Abraham and Sarah crucified their comfort zones. Ooh, that's the holy grail, isn't it? I can hear the air conditioning on right now. You know, 50 years ago, there'd be fans whirring around. 100 years ago, you'd open the windows. Air conditioning's comfortable. And we have to crucify our comfort zones, too. Life was harder back then. Probably if you took me and sent me over to the Middle East and made me a, a tent guy, I would be very unhappy for a while until I got the hang of it. But we have comfort zones, too. And sometimes those comfort zones get in the way of our worship and our relationship with God. We like stability, we like routine, and the older we get, don't break that routine. That's holy grail too. This is my routine, this is how I do it. We like our health, we like our pleasure, and the coveted time. We like our time to just do what we want. But Abraham and Sarah, they crucified, they had no choice but to crucify them. They could just live a complete life of disobedience, or they could just follow God and tough it out and, and trust him to make them successful, and he did. Verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
For he has prepared a city for them. I want to read the uh, Living Bible. Sometimes these different versions really um, bring out the flavor a little more. I'll read that again. It says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised in their lifetime, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. This is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this isn't just Abraham and Sarah. This is all those in the chapter, and I submit all those believers throughout the centuries and the millennia that trust God that tr- and choose to follow his path. They could have gone back, but they didn't. They could have made their, you know, at one point, Abraham and Lot, they had so much livestock, they had so much wealth that they could have rested on that. Abraham could have. Now, we know what, what happened to Lot, and it hurt him. He went into the world. Abraham refused to let the world change him and jade him. He continued to be obedient to God even though he was starting to develop wealth on this earth. And the question is, where are we when it comes to the world? And let me ask you this question. Let's just say four, five months, three months. What comes to your mind if I ask this question? Maybe at the beginning of this year you were on fire for the Lord. You were excited. You had plans. You, you were going to you know, have regular devotions, regular prayer. You wanted to hear from God. You wanted to be used from God. And then three, four, five, six months goes by and your, you've, your fire has gone out. So what is it in your life that has got in the way of your fire for the Lord? It's got to be something in the world, right? And that's what the devil does. And I've seen that many a times. People are on fire for the Lord and it's so exciting. And some of them, he gets his clutches in them and he pulls them away because he sees that too. And he starts throwing things at them, temptations, temptations, check this out, do this. And they get all distracted. And it's sad. It's a sad thing to watch because the world is thrown at you. And it's up to you whether you're going to take it or you're going to continue to have that fire for God. It's a choice, brothers and sisters. But let's look at the rewards for being faithful. Number one, God is proud of them. He's not ashamed to be called their God. Who doesn't, when, you're, when we're little, who doesn't spe- seek their parents' approval, at least from one time, one time or another? And even when we're grown, sometimes we still seek approval from those that we love. God had, they had God's approval. He was not ashamed to tell everyone, even in sacred scripture, they're my children. But they did bad. They're my children. I've redeemed them. I've justified. Don't talk bad about my kids. You know what I'm saying? And that's exciting to me. I mean, I, in this world, there's very few people that I, I want to impress, but I want to impress God. I want him to be happy with me. I want to go to heaven and him to say, Joey. <laughs> very few people call me Joey, by the way. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Oh, yes! That makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Two. They were looking for that heavenly city. Now, I've been reading a lot about this heavenly city. We actually covered it in our Revelation study. It's been spoken about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This place must be something else. Christians, don't get too comfortable here. 
It doesn't matter what we have on this earth. Our mansions in heaven will make what we have here look like pup tents. And I don't mean wealth and gold and dollar bills. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about heavenly rewards. Things that cannot even be explained in the scripture. Don't get too comfortable here. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So in addition to everything else, Abraham offered up his son to God. Now we have to explain what this means. Abraham and Sarah, for so long, you know, they've been hearing about the promise and their descendants and making a great nation. It's really going to happen starting through their one boy, Isaac. So, you know, in her elderly years and, and she can't get pregnant and eventually God delivers that promise and she de- delivers a baby in her elder years and this is the son of promise. And then God one day says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, go up to Mount Moriah and I want you to offer him, sacrifice him, kill him. Oh, that must have put shudders through Abraham's heart. I don't understand, Lord. And you could imagine this crisis of faith he had, but he did it. Well, he didn't do it. He did and he didn't do it. So he brought his son up and he prepared him on the altar and he bound him and he took the knife and he was going to do it and the angel stopped him. And you might say, well, why would God do that? Well, honestly, I believe part of it is for us here that we could see Abraham's heart. It could be written down in sacred scripture that this man was willing to offer and put God first. And of course, God never, ever, ever asked or uh, demanded anybody sacrifice another person. So he did it, but he knew that it wasn't going to happen, if you know what I mean. And, And Abraham knew that somehow, some way, that he was going to get his son back. He didn't know how it was going to happen because he was committed. But he got his son back. It was a type of the resurrection. Now, God also offered up his only son so that you and I could have salvation. But his son also went willingly. He died on the cross, putting our sins, destroying them, so that you and I could have free fellowship with God and all the benefits that come with it, abundant life, you name it. I will say this as well. Let me talk figuratively a little bit. God will sometimes challenge us when it comes to our children. If there's one thing in the world that we might make idols of in this world, I think children ranks really high up there. And figuratively, God will ask us to put them on the altar. Figuratively. Don't get yourself in trouble with uh, family services or anything like that. Every one of us will be challenged to put God first in our families. And I'll say this, I've talked to a lot of prodigals over the years. And here's the caveat. You could do everything right with your kids and they still could exercise their free will to leave the house and go down a self-destructive path. That's their choice. God's given them free will. may not be your fault. However, I've talked to another prodigals over the years and they get to the age, usually in the teen years, And it bothers us, but sometimes it bothers us because it's convicting. Where now they look at us and ask us questions. Well, you need to have your own faith. You need to go to church. You need to, you need to. And the kid turns around and goes, but you don't. If we're going to compromise in our homes, our kids are going to pick up on it. I like the fact that my son is 14. Because sometimes he keeps me on my toes. 
He's, he's a little camera inside my home, you know? He's a little microphone in the camera. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing because I have to reevaluate myself and I have to pray and I have to ask the Lord. So it is, I don't, you know, it's a good thing. But if we're going to ask our kids not to compromise, then we shouldn't be compromising. If we're going to ask our kids to have their own faith and put God first, then we should be putting God's first, God first. Because otherwise, what we're showing our children in our homes is that God is a little God. So, so why should we get upset when they leave the house, become prodigals, or their God is a little God? We, should, we need to put them first. Not an easy thing to do, and only through the Holy Spirit. Failures of both Abraham and Sarah. Now, I want you to check this out. Serious failures. These, look how much is devoted in this chapter to Abraham and Sarah. Now, let's talk about their failures. And this isn't an exhaustive list. In Genesis 12, we're told that Abraham's wife was beautiful, absolutely stunning. And he was concerned when he went into Egypt that they were going to kill him and take his wife. Where's the faith, Abe? (laughs) Where's the faith? God promised you all these things. How is this going to happen if you're dead? He had a lapse of faith and trust in God. It happens. I want to encourage you with that. But Pastor Joe, you know, don't look at the guys on TV. Don't read the books and, and think that, you know, you can never achieve what they've achieved. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. Abraham and Sarah, and, and they both go along with this plan, had a serious lapse of faith. And it gets better or it gets worse. Pharaoh rebukes Abraham because God basically tells Pharaoh, don't touch her. <laughs> don't touch, that's Abraham's wife. I thought it was his sister. So he goes and he goes to Abraham and says, take her, you know, because I think he put him, brought her and put her in his harem because Abraham said it was my sister. So he wakes up and, you know, God deals with him and, and he goes to Abraham, just take her. Why did you tell me this? Why did you get me in trouble with God? Isn't that amazing when, as believers, an unbeliever has to rebuke us? Come on, I know it's happened to me. Aren't you a Christian? Don't you know your scripture? Aren't you a person of faith? Here, this unbeliever, this pagan, is rebuking Abraham's hypocrisy. A little embarrassing moment there. Genesis 18, let's go to Sarah. When God confirmed that Sarah would be pregnant in her old age, Sarah laughed. She laughed at God. She kind of did it where I don't know how people think they're going to do it, and God's not going to see it. You know, she kind of did it quietly. But God knew and said, you laughed. No, I didn't laugh. Now you're going to lie to God and say you didn't laugh? Come on. I mean, this is just funny stuff. So much so that Isaac, their, their son, was, was named laughter. Isaac means laughter. And I don't mean it's like, a, a, you know, Sarah was on the floor with a belly laugh. I think it was commensurate to one of our tss or huh or, you know. And don't we, as, as Christians, at times, the Lord shows us something. The Lord promises us something. We read something in the scripture, and that's for everybody else in the church I go to, but it's not me because God's forgotten about me. Don't we tss or huh or do that to God at times? Sure we do. Sure we do. There's hope for all of us. Abraham and Sarah, I'm not done. Third point is the two of them. In Genesis 16, this is a real blunder of blunders. They both had a lapse of faith because it was getting close to the point where, you know, it was getting past the point where Sarah could have children. So she comes up with this great idea and she says to her husband, listen, I've got a younger handmaiden and I'm old, factory's closed, 
go into her, this is, this is the plan, and have a baby. And maybe that'll be the son of promise. And, and he says, hey, great idea, honey. You know? <laughs> it's like, bro, you know, <laughs> be the man of your house. Say, wait, you know, why don't we pray about this a little longer? Do we ever have carnal solutions to life's problems? Do we ever, brothers and sisters, I don't mind raising my hand first the whole time. Do we ever, are we ever faced with an insurmountable Goliath of a problem and we completely circumvent God and we have this brilliant carnal idea of how we're going to get ourselves out of that jam? Sure we do. Absolutely. And I'll leave it at that. So my question to you is, do you still think, do you come here thinking the first five or ten minutes, well, the Lord can't use me? Do you still feel that way? I really hope not. I really hope not. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And this is where we're going to uh, be closed for the morning. Isaac, Abraham's son, blessed Jacob and Esau, Esau, and later Jacob, his son, blessed Joseph's sons. And you might ask, what's the big deal? Faith in a blessing? You know, when he dies, it's not his problem anymore. But these are his kids. You know, if you're going to lay your hands on your children or your grandchildren, and you're going to say, this is what you're going to be, you're going to be as great evangelist, God is going to use you, whatever the case may be, you better be right. Because now you've put it in that child's mind that, you know, they look to you as, as the parent or the grandparent. You better be right. So faith and blessing is very important because what are you doing? You're saying prophecy. You're prophesying the future. You have to, number one, hear from God. And we can only hear from God if we're in fellowship with God. You know, when you get to know somebody and you, you develop a relationship, you start to, my wife and I married be 18 years she starts to say, literally, and, and it, out of the blue, she'll walk in, I'll see the look on her face, and I'll finish her sentence, or she does it with me. You start to know somebody very intimately. When you start to know God and you know his word, you understand what he likes, what, the way he thinks, the way he works. And you've seen this movie before. You've seen it replayed because you're in a relationship with God. It's no different when it comes to us. How will I know God's will? Through word and... And, and prayer. And for the record, I never would ever claim, because I'm not, God doesn't give me that gift as a prophet, but there are very, very rare occasions where the Lord had me speak something and it actually came to pass a year later or in the future. It was a prophetic utterance. That'd be cool if I could go through that every day like that, but that, it's not there. He really, because I'm actually reluctant to say it unless he really confirms it to me. Because, you know, it's got to be right. You don't want to be a false prophet. If you've been a Christian for some time, I'm sure God has done that with you as well. Somebody walks in your office, a complete stranger, they go to counsel with you, you already know what the issue is before they open their mouth, and that confirms why they're there. Very exciting. That's one of the coolest things you could ever do. God uses you and I to circumnavigate time and future. So the fifth profile in faith for this, for this study, where we're going to leave it, is Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to put them together, faith and blessing. This morning, we're halfway through the faith chapter. And it's a blessing to see men and women through their faith and their failures. In real life, 
you know, when, when I'm, I'm studying for this chapter and, and I'm reading about faith, I, and Chuck Smith passed away, I thought about this man's life. I still listen to him on the iPod in the car as if he's right there and he's still alive. And he just says, he goes, when I die, don't say Chuck Smith died. Say I move to another place, you know. And I just remember his Chuckisms. But by faith, here's a man in California when a lot of denominations were going south. They were going the wrong way. And God said to him, I want you to get back to the basics. I want you to get back to the word. And I want you to get back to prayer. And Calvary chapels just bloomed. They went all throughout the United States and they're uh, across the globe as well. By faith, Chuck Smith listened to God. He didn't say it was too hard. He didn't complain. He didn't give excuses. He just was obedient. And that's what God can do through us. And you know what? In a, a man in his position, he would never take the accolades. I've seen him in person. He's not that way. He didn't dress different. He didn't drive a different car. He didn't act different. He never let it affect him. He just did what the Lord called him to do. He didn't take the accouterments of what society wanted to give him. But it would be a waste of a sermon this morning if I didn't ask everyone in this room to pray in faith. Trust, reliance, confidence. See what God can do in your life. I want you to pray about your current circumstances, your current trials, your future endeavors, and see what God's purpose is in your life. I want you to be motivated through the word and prayer. Do you realize that God has more faith in us than we have in ourselves? Think about that for a minute. God has more faith in you and I than I or you have in ourselves. That's our God. And in this segment, we see a lot of God believing in people. Again, not for salvation, but believing in them that they can do it because he wants to do it with them. So I want everyone here to get excited about that. You live in a humdrum life. You're in a humdrum job. You are in a humdrum existence. Work for God. And I'm not saying to quit your job. I'm just saying work for God and let that transcend all of your life. Procrastination excuses, we've got to move them aside. But first, before we even do that, we need to exercise enough faith if you're here this morning and you're new to the church, and you're new to the Bible, you have to exercise enough faith and believe in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Especially if, through the Holy Spirit, there's things that are clicking as you're listening. And you're, you're new to the Bible. You don't know this. God is trying to reach you. He's trying to get your attention. First, you have to believe that he loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins and that he wants you to have everlasting life, and he wants you to have an abundant life in addition to that. So that's the first thing, if you haven't, to exercise in faith this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word. It's so powerful. It's so delicious. It's so chewy, and it's flavorful, Lord. And uh, we can, any.